Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Welcome back, everyone. Today, Nina and I are going to be discussing the 1967 trial of the Plymouth mail robbery suspects and the events around it. By 1967, the postal inspectors were at their wits' end. The clock was ticking on the federal statute of limitations. Although state charges could still be brought against the suspects for an additional five years, this was their investigation, and they weren't going to hand it off to the locals. A complete repeat of the Brinks heist investigation, but this time there was no Specky O'Keefe to put on the stand. Their ace up their sleeve, George William Agisatellis, a.k.a. Billy Aggie, had been AWOL since November of 66. Listed as a hunted parole violator, both the defense and the prosecution were believed to have wanted Billy to testify should a trial take place. We won't get into the details about Billy's background in this episode, but you can hear more about him in episodes 2 and 17. As I mentioned, Billy was, as Nina mentioned, Billy was nowhere to be found. F. Lee Bailey stated that Billy had approached him extremely concerned that he was to appear in front of the parole board and couldn't have his counsel present. Bailey said that the last time he saw Billy was then. Of course, he never showed up at the hearing. According to one FBI 302, Dad reported to his handlers in late 1969, the pro learner had bragged to him that he shot Billy in the head with a 45 while they had a casual conversation in Pro's car. Here's the thing. There are four men who were tied to Jack whose bodies have never been found. Billy, Tommy Richards, and two of the Bennett brothers. We know that Stevie Fleming claims that he murdered all three of the Bennett brothers. His version of events is that he killed Wimpy Bennett in the presence of Peter Poulos, who he later murdered in the Nevada desert, because Wimpy had stolen from him. We'll get into that in the next episode, but Stevie has never been able to tell the authorities where the bodies of Wimpy and Walter Bennett are located. As we mentioned in episode 37, some believe that Billy went into the witness protection program, but there is no evidence to substantiate that claim. Billy was never brought into court to testify in the Plymouth case, and in those days, that would have been a must in exchange for protection. We would see that with Barboza multiple times, and truly, there wasn't even such a program at that time. The first person to enter the program was Barboza the following year. So why would the government cart Billy off to safety when he had nothing to barter? They had no reason at all, and considering what a degenerate Billy was, do you really think he could have gone off on his own and not continued to get into trouble? Absolutely not. We know Dad lied, or at least doctored most, if not all, of the statements he made to his handlers, but as I've said multiple times, there was always a thread of truth to his stories. When Dad was dying, his filter was gone, and his mind wasn't quite right. He spoke several times about how he never expected there to be so much blood when someone was shot. He never said who. He definitely wasn't the one who pulled the trigger. It was either Billy or one other person that he was with when they were killed. We'll get into who the other man might be a little bit later in this episode. Well, I agree that Billy was a danger and had to go. And as Jack always said, no body, no crime. And no time. In episode 35, Nina and I discuss what Jack and the boys were up to between 65 and 67, but we left out one event in particular. 
If you've been following along this season, you might recall that Jack banged up the Plymouth proceeds between the boys and the streets, but left $300,000 with Sonny and Mello to run through their gas station and tire shop in order to later be divvied up amongst the crew. Mello had other ideas. Sonny had rented an apartment across from his own to stash the money in, and Mello decided the best option was to burn the building down. Sonny agreed to the plan. While the Postals and the Feds, including Special Agent H. Paul Rico, had Sonny's apartment under surveillance, Mello moved the cash, and Sonny lit the fire before scurrying back to their shop on Huntington Ave. Where did Mello take the money? <laughs> to Maine. Of course it was Maine. All roads lead to Maine. But what did Mello do with it there? He wandered it through Bobby Gentilly, who Mello had known since their teens. Bobby was known as a car thief back then. Well, no wonder Richie tormented Mello and Bobby for decades. (laughs) As we said before, Jack never forgot or forgave anything, nor did Dad. But as you keep telling me, we have to wait for that story. Okay, take us back to the recap of episode 35. While Jack and his crew were on a robbery spree between 65 and the summer of 67, the Postals were still gathering evidence to make their case against them. In August of 66, the Boston Globe noted that there was one year left on the federal statute of limitations. The Postmaster General claimed that the investigation had been, quote, pretty much completed since June 1965. Boston's Chief Postal Inspector William White agreed, quote, our job is investigation and referring the results to the U.S. Attorney, unquote. But the interim U.S. Attorney, Paul Markham, claimed that he needed more time. Quote, I want to thoroughly familiarize myself with the matter. It is still undergoing continuing investigation, unquote. Markham had been appointed to replace W. Arthur Garrity as U.S. Attorney when Garrity was made a judge and a colleague of Charles Wazanski's in July of 1966. Thank goodness Garrity moved on. Well, more fed magic. In February of 67, the Boston Globe ran a piece by Robert Kenny with the opening line, quote, if the government had put Fort Knox in Massachusetts, it would have been a bad mistake. It would have been <laughs> cleaned out. Where's the lie? Where is the lie? The pressure was unbearable for the authorities. The Boston Strangler murder trial was taking place that month, and Kenny went on to recount the Plymouth heist, the 1950 Brinks robbery, and Elmer Trigger Burke's escapades in the aftermath of the Brinks case. On March 13, 1967, Judge Charles Wazanski swore in Paul Markham as the new U.S. attorney. Markham had previously been the assistant U.S. attorney. He represented the U.S. Postal Inspector John Donahue and Tommy Richards' case against the government. On March 27th, it was announced that the grand jury would be impaneled on March 31st. U.S. Attorney Paul Markham was to represent the government and Judge Anthony Julian would be presiding. And while the grand jury was sitting, a Skelly armored truck was taken on April 1st for $200,000. Hey, the Postals claimed they were curbing crime with their investigation. (laughs) Yeah, okay. That was the fifth armored truck heist since January of 65, knitting over a million dollars. We covered those heists in episode 35. On April 15th, the Globe ran another piece blasting the authorities. The headline read, quote, Justice Department has weak Plymouth robbery case, end quote. James Doyle said that if the case ever went to trial, the feds would feel more scorn than glory from the public and that convictions would be elusive. On May 7th, it was reported that the government was seeking a Specky O'Keefe type of witness for the case. The feds and the Justice Department were doing everything they could to find an informant. 
Jerome Sullivan went into detail about the search for Billy Aggie. Where is Billy was the subheading, and even his wife had no answer. Sullivan pondered how Billy could have just vanished. The rumor was that the authorities were hiding him in order to ensure that he testified in front of the grand jury. But that wasn't to be. If you listen to episode 36, you might recall that Jack was assaulted by two postal inspectors while leaving the scene in Brighton along with Dad and Tommy Richards. In my mind, the postals were pissed off that the grand jury wasn't going as planned. On June 5th, the Postmaster General announced that their investigation was complete. One of a million times that they said that. At this time, Jack and his wife's civil suit was being heard, but would later be dismissed. On June 21st, the prosecutor announced the final round of the grand jury hearings would begin in July. On July 24th, Sonny D'Aferio and his wife were subpoenaed while they were resting at a motel in Plattsburgh, New York. Patricia had been arrested for interfering with a customs agent's investigation. She was freed on $100 bail. With their car impounded, they flew back to Boston. Upon their arrival at Logan Airport, reporters were there to question the couple about the subpoenas and their upcoming appearance in front of the grand jury. Sonny told reporters that he would be represented by his attorney, F. Lee Bailey. Bailey said that his client was one of several men under constant surveillance and harassment by the postal inspectors. Patricia testified that she had been told by relatives and friends that she would face death or imprisonment if she didn't cooperate with the investigation. On July 31st, just two weeks before the federal statute of limitations expired, Jack, Patricia, and Tommy Richards were indicted. Bailey said later that he didn't really think they'd been they would be indicted since the investigation was so sloppy, and he didn't think that the government had a case, but he conceded that he'd been wrong. He'd also realized that the Postals had zeroed in on Patricia instead of Sonny until he was getting ready to go to meet Paul Markham at the commissioner's office. Each surrendered, and bail was set at $25,000 for Jack and Tommy and $5,000 for Patricia. According to Bailey, Jack was good-natured about the whole thing, but gave him a hard time about his opinion that they wouldn't be indicted. When Jack asked later what Bailey thought would happen next, Bailey replied, I think I would be wise to keep my opinions to myself. I didn't do so well last time. (laughs) Jack quipped, well, you're just a young fellow and you'll make mistakes from time to time. Stick with me, though, and I'll make a good lawyer out of you yet. Judge Charles Wysanski was assigned the case by drawing lots according to him. The judge said that he would confer with attorneys Bailey and Bolero before setting a date for the arraignment. If you want to know more about Bailey and Bolero, check out episode 26, The Defense Never Rests. Now, before we move on, I know that Nina wants to tell us about Judge Wysanski. Charles Edward Wazanski was born in 1906 to Charles Edward Wazanski Sr. and Maud Rebecca Joseph. The Wazanskis had arrived in the U.S. from Poland just before the Civil War and gotten into real estate. His maternal line was from England by way of Australia. I assume you mean the prison colony, otherwise known as Australia. Yes, they were sent there because of the great gold dust robbery of 1839. Oh, he was the perfect judge for Jack, despite his nickname, Ivan the Terrible. Wysanski was the most sympathetic judge Bailey and Jack could have dreamed of or hoped for. Bailey said in his book that Wysanski was given their case because he was the longest serving judge on the bench, but Wysanski claimed after the trial that it had been luck of the draw. I don't buy that whole drawing lots thing, but anyhow, continue about the gold dust. Wysanski's maternal great-great-grandfather, Ellis Casper, was supposedly the mastermind of a scheme to steal gold dust that had been sent to England from Brazil. Ellis had inside knowledge about everything related to the delivery through his son who worked for the delivery company. They arranged for a friend to pick up the packages before the real courier arrived. 
However, the whole thing fell apart because to use the cliche, there's no honor among thieves. All of the participants in the crime tried to steal from one another, and in the end, the Caspers ended up with nothing from their efforts. Ellis Casper and his son were found guilty after a trial that lasted eight days. They were transported to Australia. His son died of scarlet fever soon after they arrived, but the rest of the family who joined them seemed to have done okay for themselves. Wazanski's great-grandmother married a rabbi and eventually moved to New York City with him and their children. The rabbi was stuck in Australia, too? Yes, but I can't find anything about how he ended up down there. Maybe he was ministering to the criminals and their families. <laughs> Wysanski graduated from Harvard in 1927 and then Harvard Law School in 1930. His mentor at Harvard was the future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter. Frankfurter recommended Wysanski for a job at the Labor Department in 1933, and Joseph P. Kennedy made sure his appointment was approved by Congress. Well, in D.C., Wazanski wrote the legislation that created the Works Progress Administration, among other New Deal projects. After eight years in D.C., President Roosevelt appointed Wazanski to the federal bench. He was sworn in on January 26, 1942. Eighteen months later, he married Gisela Warburg, the daughter of Max Warburg. Judge Wazanski had quite the pedigree there. Well, it's interesting for sure. Jack and Effley Bailey couldn't have asked for a better judge. Bailey said later, quote, he is the kind of trial judge whose mold should be saved, unquote. But he would say that since Wazanski let him have everything he asked for and more. True. All right, let's get back to the case and the lack of an arraignment date. The reason why there was no arraignment date set was that Wazanski was on vacation in Europe. The U.S. attorney, Markham, said there was no rush now that the indictments were returned. On August 15th, the arraignment took place. Bolero and Bailey moved for dismissal since the Postals had dragged their feet in getting the indictment. But Wysanski rejected their appeal and a trial date of November 3rd was set. During the hearing, Judge Wysanski set guidelines for press coverage during the trial and what the attorneys could disclose. He also ordered the prosecution to give the defense attorneys a testimony from the grand jury. The following month, it was announced that the trial would be moved to San Francisco. Jack said that although he'd like to visit California, it would be a burden on him to have to fly all of his witnesses there. When Bailey and Bolero found out they would lose Wysanski as their judge, all requests to move the trial were withdrawn. Well, Judge Wysanski wanted to preside over the trial, too. True. Jack was hospitalized on September 18th when he collapsed during a hearing at which Judge Wysanski said that they would move the trial to New York City. The doctors said Jack had suffered a mild pulmonary embolism. All of that diner grub had started to take its toll. Being the tough old goat that Jack was, he recuperated quickly, but this was not the first embolism, rather his second. Jack kept that a secret except from his immediate family and dad. While the stress of the trial might have been the reason Jack was under pressure, he also had to worry about the men and his crew. Roy was preoccupied with a pair of brothers he had defrauded, so Jack didn't worry too much about him. Sonny was laying low since his wife Patty was on trial with them, and in turn, Mello Merlina was also staying out of trouble. The only two who might be creating mischief were Dad and Pro Learner. Dad was concerned that he would be picked up any day as there were still secret indictments lingering over their heads. Bored out of his mind, Pro showed up at Dad's apartment around three in the morning. Dad heard a horn beeping and looked out the window to see Pro's Thunderbird at the curb, so he threw on his robe and headed downstairs. 
As Dad hit the sidewalk, Pro was at the passenger side of the Thunderbird. The closer Dad got to the car, Pro yanked the door open and deposited a 400-pound hooker in front of Dad while screaming, I've got a gift for you. Dad was screaming too, fuck you, and Pro took off burning rubber as he sped up the Jamaica way. <laughs> that was hilarious. <laughs> Dad loved telling that story. Despite the stories he told Coleman and Rico about Pro, they actually had a good relationship. Well, don't get into that now. Save it for later this season. And the next one. Okay, back to the trial. Bailey and Bolero submitted a motion to dismiss the charges against the defendants on the basis that Jack and Tommy were subjected to an illegal investigation. The initial hearing was postponed until October 23rd, along with the other pretrial motions. The press were given an update, but no access to the courtroom. And the Plymouth suspects weren't the only ones in court. On October 31st, the Boston Globe reported that John Macreese had filed a federal lawsuit against his book publisher for breach of contract. According to him, the publisher had told him in August there was not enough interest in a book on the Plymouth job. He also alleged that he had made the decision to cancel the contract three days before the indictments were handed down. Macreese was seeking damages of $1.5 million. Poor John Macreese. Jury selection began in early November. Judge Wazanski called the herd of 200 men and women who had been summoned for jury duty in less than an hour. Bailey commented in his book, quote, even though in most cases, Massachusetts jurors are picked without screening by counsel, Judge Wazanski helped us by summarily dismissing all those who had the slightest degree of prejudice or personal interest in the case, unquote. <laughs> the judge then announced that the jury would be sequestered for the duration of the trial. Wazanski noted that in his 26-year judicial career, he had never once locked up a jury. He promised them that they would be allowed to go home for the holidays if the trial lasted that long. Of course, the media named every member of the jury, their addresses, and their professions. And they wondered why there was jury tampering. The trial set to begin on November 6th. Tommy Richards was nowhere to be found. His wife stated that she hadn't seen him since November 1st. Tommy was staying at a motel in West Attleboro in an effort to give his family some peace. Their lives had been turned upside down once again with the upcoming trial. He was last seen at work on November 2nd, around 4 p.m. when he clocked out for the day. In the meantime, Tommy's wife was convinced that Dad and Jack had killed her husband. She turned up at Jack's house first on the morning of November 6th, around 2 a.m. Jack was a light sleeper and was at the door in a matter of seconds when she rang the bell. There she was, shaking her finger in Jack's face while hissing, You murdered my husband. Jack phoned Dad and told him that Tommy's wife had just shown up and accused him of killing Tommy. Jack warned Dad that she was probably headed his way next. Rather than wait for her to ring the bell and wake everyone up, Dad went down and waited. Within 10 minutes or so, he heard her noisy, rattling car pull up. In a repeat of what she did with Jack, she approached Dad with her finger extended, You murdered my husband. She drove off and called the police and named Jack and Dad as her husband's killers. Within an hour, the local police hauled Dad and Jack in for questioning. Bailey went to demand Jack's release and Ronnie Chisholm to retrieve dad. Both attorneys told the authorities to charge them or spring them. They had no choice but to release them. Tommy's case was severed from Jack and Patricia's and a bench warrant was issued as Judge Wazanski believed that Tommy had become a fugitive. Bailey told the court that Tommy was probably kidnapped and being pressed for the location of the money of which he was sure Tommy had no knowledge. The trial began with the testimony of the postal guard, Patrick Skena, who had been kidnapped by Jack on that infamous day in August of 1962. He stated that one of the thieves held a shotgun to his head. Skena said he reached for his gun, but he froze with fear. 
During the cross-examination, Bailey asked him, quote, did you not six days after the robbery tell Captain McCarthy of the Massachusetts State Police that you would not know the robber Tony if you ever saw him again, end quote? I don't recall, Skana admitted. Bailey, you told the postal inspectors that you went directly from Boston to Hyannis. Yes, sir, Skana said. But that's not true, Bailey charged. No, sir, Skana conceded. Why did you make a false statement to the inspectors under oath, Skana? Because I thought if I told them I would lose my job. He would have lost his job because he'd been drinking on the job. <laughs> How true. After lunch, it was the second kidnapped victim, William Barrett's turn on the stand. Barrett identified Jack in the courtroom as one of the men who carried out the robbery. Markham said he would prove that Pat... Patricia was the woman on the bridge just south of where the robbery took place and that the man with her on the bridge was the now AWOL Tommy. Tommy was the woman on the bridge and the man with him was Roy. Barrett claimed that Jack was the man who had told him to open the door of the truck and threatened to blow off his head. He also testified that he visited Jack's favorite Watertown diner in June of 64 to get a look at Jack, who was by then the Postal's main suspect. He sat in the back watching the door. Quote, Kelly came in, stopped, and came toward me. He went to the end of the counter and took a seat. Did he give you any indication that he knew you, Bailey asked? He didn't, Barrett admitted. Barrett said he remembered the shape of the face, the mouth, and the complexion. I knew that Kelly was the man in the mail truck, unquote. But Bailey questioned how Barrett was able to recognize Jack since Jack was wearing sunglasses, but Barrett insisted that Jack was the same man. Then Bailey played another card. He asked Barrett to look around the courtroom to see if he could identify anyone else who was in the diner that June day three years before. Of course, Barrett couldn't and had to admit it. Bailey then went to stand beside John Macris, the journalist who had given Jack the inside scoop on the Plymouth job. Quote, do you recognize this man? End quote. Barrett had to concede that he did not. While the prosecution witnesses came forward, the press was more concerned about Patricia's wardrobe. She had taken great care in choosing her tailored outfits, selecting eight of them, including a light blue wool suit with a fox collar and a patterned silk dress to enjoy her acquittal in style at the Ritz-Carlton. One witness who identified Patricia as the woman on the bridge later admitted that he had seen her poolside at a motel that summer. And let's not forget, she didn't become a blonde until two years after the robbery and had been a lifelong brunette until that point. And of course, there was my favorite scene when Bolero had Patricia stand up so that a witness could identify her cleavage. When the witness said that maybe it was her blouse that made her look less well endowed than Tommy on the bridge, Bolero and Bailey had Patricia leave the room and change into a tight-fitting sweater with no bra. Can you imagine pulling that stunt today? <laughs> no way, but their strategic worked and the witness was forced to concede that it probably wasn't Patricia who he had seen on the bridge. The other witnesses' testimonies were similarly torn apart by Bailey and Bolero. Their timelines were off, or their descriptions of who they had seen had changed from their initial reports in 1962. Wazanski also told the jury to disregard the testimony of Dr. Freeman, a dentist from Westwood. He identified one of the postal inspectors who had previously interviewed him for an hour and a half as Jack. But the real reason that Freeman's testimony was dismissed was that his ex-wife had contacted Markham and told him that the doctor had been drunk the evening of the Plymouth job. <laughs> Markham moved to strike the testimony and Wazanski agreed. And there was drama outside of the courtroom, too. That weekend, Pro had another one of his motel room TV incidents. 
I still like to think Propolis tends to have an alibi. Nah, he was just a little temperamental, I suspect. Anyhow, he wanted some alone time to watch the Sunday football game, so he rented a room in Brookline. After losing $7,000 on whatever game he bet on, Pro ripped the TV from its secured place and hurled it out of the window, luckily not hitting any passers-by, but the TV was toast. Can't. <laughs> Back to the trial. Dr. Freeman was the last eyewitness. Markham introduced the few pieces of physical evidence he had and then rested his case. Bailey and Valero made several motions to dismiss the trial, but Boisansky refused, saying, quote, I could rule on those motions now, but I think it better for both sides to have a jury decide this case, unquote. The judge's instructions to the jury lasted nearly an hour including you have been told by the government that these were disinterested witnesses. Do you really believe that there were disinterested witnesses? Many of them knew that there were rewards of up to $150,000 offered for a solution to the case. Is this not a situation in which motive must be weighed? The defendants don't have to prove anything. It is up to the government, and the government knows that from the beginning. Wazanski reminded his audience. The jury took an hour and 10 minutes to reach its verdict of not guilty. Wysanski delivered another speech, quote, I agree with and thoroughly applaud your verdict. Hearing only the evidence admitted before you and weighing the arguments of counsel and the charge by the court, you have reached what seems to me the only just result according to the law, end quote. He then launched into an invective against the press of their coverage of the case, the trial, and Wysanski personally. He said that he'd considered bringing contempt charges against the Boston Herald Traveler specifically, but decided to explore other avenues. Three days later, the Associated Press reported that Wysanski had threatened to bring the Boston Herald Traveler before federal grand jury on charges of financial malfeasance and connections to the mafia. Tommy Richards was never found. The search for him and his remains went on for months. In December, the quarries in Quincy and the woods around the South Shore were searched. Watson Pond in Taunton was dragged, but not so much as a shred of evidence was uncovered. On January 3rd, 1968, Tommy's car was found in the parking lot beside the helicopter pad outside the Holiday Inn in Dedham on Route 1 near Route 128. It was the first clue in the case of Tommy's disappearance. No one seemed to know how long the vehicle had been parked there, but the authorities believed that it was at least since New Year's Eve because there was at least four inches of snow on the roof. Inside the car were an automatic shotgun, electrician's tools, and some clothing, but no blood or any other evidence to indicate that Tommy had been murdered. He was eventually declared dead in 1986. The location of Tommy's car is interesting to me. Dad used that as a meetup spot for years. I always just assumed because of its location next to the highway, Route 1 or Route 1A, but maybe it was something else. I believe that the person Dad saw being killed was Tommy. From what Dad was describing in his last days, Dad was in the car with the other two men. Dad was in the back seat, the shooter in the driver's seat, and the victim in the passenger seat. I tried to question F. Lee Bailey about this, but he muddled up the details between Billy's murder, Rasmussen's, and Tommy's. Again, I have nothing concrete, but I believe Dad was there when Tommy was killed. Also, Dad had nothing to do with Tommy's wife later, unlike everyone else from those days. Well, I think you're right about Tommy. Maybe if we get, forget the rest of Richie's FBI file, there might be more answers. You would think with the trial behind them that Jack would lay low after the trial, but nope. This is a story that I cannot confirm, but definitely believe to be true. After the trial was over, the Postal still continued to pester Jack and the boys. 
Jack couldn't resist plotting revenge against them one more time. Jack, Dad, and Pro concocted a scheme to return the Plymouth loot in exchange for immunity in the original reward money. Oh, gee, what does that story remind you of? Mm, Dad wandering the streets with his letter of immunity from the Department of Justice and the Gardner heist? Yeah, that story. Uh Uh-huh. I know. Don't say it. I'm not going to say any more. You do that deliberately to bait our listeners into listening to future episodes. (laughs) All that and to aggravate you. Anyhow, the feelers went out and word came back that the authorities were willing to play ball. Jack arranged a meeting with the authorities in Kenmore Square where Palm Ave and Beacon Street intersect. It was a perfect blend of chaos and possible escape routes should the authorities try to pull anything. There, Jack waited at 11 in the morning. One postal inspector, Special Agent Gerard Coleman, and a rep from the state attorney general's office pulled up. Jack greeted them in his typical calm and reserved manner. After shaking hands, he slid in the back seat and went for a spin to discuss his terms. Although they all wanted to bring Jack down, they were also in awe of his professionalism and considered him a worthy adversary. They reminded Jack that although the statute of limitations had passed for the federal charges and they could negotiate immunity on the state charges, the IRS could always come after them for income tax evasion. Jack told them clearly what he wanted, the $200,000 reward and immunity from any further prosecution in exchange for the return of one-third of the total haul, roughly $500,000. The authorities griped about that not being enough, but Jack sold them on the idea that the crime would be solved and that he was the one taking all of the risk. As a collaborator, he would likely have to flee town with his family in order to stay alive. Allegedly, Komen told Rico about the agreement and Rico told them they were all crazy, but the authorities went ahead with their agreement and set up a meeting for three days later. Jack purchased a used four-door Chevy. He took the car to Mallow and Sonny's garage to trick out the engine for maximum speed and a few other customizations that Jack needed, including extra wide rims and tires for the rear of the vehicle. While the other the car was being overhauled to Jack's specifications, they had one more meeting during which Jack relented and said he would settle for $100,000 in good faith since he was only returning a portion of the loot. A final meeting place was agreed upon in Brookline. Special Agent Komen and one postal inspector would meet Jack, who would be driven by Dad to make the exchange. The following morning, Dad took the car for a test run with Pro. Even Pro, who was an excellent wheelman himself, was impressed with the souped-up Chevy and Dad's skills. Dad picked up Jack and headed to the meet, but not before disconnecting the rear tail lights entirely. The agents were waiting, along with an armored vehicle, to transfer the money to once the exchange was complete. Just as Jack had promised, a banged-up old Chevy appeared right on time. Dad was visible to the agents, but Jack was not. They must have assumed he was slumped down and out of sight. Coleman, with the satchel full of cash in hand, approached the vehicle first. Dad raised his left arm and motioned with his thumb to the back seat. Coleman opened the rear door, and as he was about to step into the vehicle, the rear seat dropped down, and there was Jack coming out of the trunk with a 12-gauge shotgun pointed straight at Coleman. Drop the money and run, Jack snarled at Komen, and with the $100,000 safely in the back seat, Dad took off like grease lightning. Poor Gerard, they broke him. <laughs> <laughs> but he did manage to hang on for another two years until Pro really broke him for good. And just like that, Jack added $100,000 to the Plymouth score and recouped a portion of what Sonny and Mello had stolen from him. 
And just like that, every law enforcement officer was gunning for them, but the authorities had to keep the theft out of the press. The embarrassment was too much for them. Word was spread that Jack was armed in their last encounter, so it should be necessary to shoot him. No one would think it was unreasonable. Jack's house was raided once again without a warrant. $290 was taken from his closet along with two money bags from the Shawmut Bank, probably the only bank that hadn't been robbed in the past 10 years. But Jack and Richie were nowhere to be found. They laid low for a while, but not long enough. Shh, don't tell secrets. Next week, we'll be discussing the Bennett brothers in much more detail than we have previously. And of course, their murders and our theories about the unsolved mystery of where the remains of two of the brothers might be. Only a couple of more months before we wrap up season one. Can't believe it. Time flies when you're having fun. Thank you all for listening. Please leave us your comments or email us. We love hearing from all of you. Share an episode with someone you know. Subscribe and consider making a donation. The link is in the show notes. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.